Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them to Revelation chapter number 2. We'll be in verses 18 to 28. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 28. And uh, I was hoping to cover the seven churches in three sermons. It looks like it's going to be a little more than that, maybe five. Uh, Ephesus, then Smyrna and Pergamum today. Thyatira next week, Lord willing, Sardis and Philadelphia, and then finally Laodicea. So maybe five sermons on the first of seven sections or cycles in the book of Revelation, and then the rest we'll, we'll cover a, a bit more quickly. But that's, uh, that's okay. These letters are a bit denser than the rest of the book. Some of these chapters are the longest chapters in the book of Revelation, and there's a lot here to unpack, uh, especially where it's a little easier to understand. So, uh, you know, there are two places actually in the book of Revelation that are, are quite clear, not very uh, symbolic or difficult at all, and that's this first section, chapters 2 and 3, and then chapters 20, 21, and 22, they're, they're quite clear. And here, what you have in these chapters is a call to endurance for the churches. But then in the end, you have what that endurance earns. So a call to the churches to endure, and then at the end of the book, the result of those who hold fast. Not only that, these letters form a kind of foundation for everything else that's going to come in the book. It's like a concrete base that on top of it are built six other stories. And what you'll notice, or I hope you'll notice, is that themes introduced here, like pressure to... Pressure to compromise, the threat of false religion, economic persecution, political persecution, the suffering of God's people and the vindication of God's people and the judgment of God. All of those things come up over and over and over again as we work through. And so we can spend a little additional time building up a good footing before moving on to trumpets and seals and bulls and beasts. So, with that in mind, let's... Look in our Bibles this morning to Revelation 2, 18 through 23, the letter to the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2, 18 through 28. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished brass or bronze. I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To the one who, the one who conquers, 
and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is uncompromising. It tells us exactly what we must hear for our eternal good and for your glory. Lord, you, you didn't come to make us comfortable. You came to tell us the truth. You came to give us eternal life. But you didn't come to give us ease in this life. Confidence, but not comfort. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would have our priorities focused where they need to be focused. And that we all would be able to say in this world, we will have trouble. We expect it. We know it's coming, but we can take heart because, Lord, you have overcome the world. And so with this in mind, we turn, Lord, to your word. I pray that you would help me to preach and help us to hear, Lord. If you do not help us, Lord, every word will fall to the ground dead. If you don't help me, Lord, it will be like gravel in my mouth. Lord, you alone sanctify your people. You are the great teacher. And so by your Spirit, I pray that you would convict and sharpen and strengthen this morning. And it's in your name we pray, and it's to you we look. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may have noticed... But this letter is the longest letter in uh, the seven churches, of the letters to the seven churches. And the reason why is because this is the central letter in the, the chiasm. If, if you remember what a chiasm is, it's a poetic structure where everything is arranged uh, essentially as a pyramid. But what's important to know here is that we're at the peak, meaning that this is the most significant portion of the structure, the most important part of these seven letters, the, the focal point of the message to the churches is here in Thyatira. And so this, this church gives us kind of the overall condition, the greatest threats, and it's a sample of, of what was going on in the ancient church. And what stands out, uh, to me at least, immediately, is that this city is also the least impressive in this list. It's the smallest city. It has no political significance. It isn't vastly wealthy or anything like that. And yet here it's given the position of honor among the letters to the churches. And I think this is just another hint that Christ cares about things that the world sees as insignificant. He honors the weak and the unimportant and the least of these and even though the world, to the world, Thyatira didn't matter, it matters tremendously to Christ. He doesn't see things the way the world sees things. He, he doesn't value things the world values them. He doesn't evaluate like the world evaluates. And, and Christians need to keep this in mind. Very rarely, if ever, can you be a success in the world and a success before Christ. It's like it says in, in 1 Samuel 16, The Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but Christ, the Lord, looks at the heart. And it just serves again as a reminder that there's no such thing as an inconsequential church or an inconsequential Christian in the eyes of the Lord. The church may be small and the believer may be weak, but they're still precious in His sight. Again, it's that, that revealing of heavenly realities. In the world, Thyatira is nothing. It receives in the heavenly places the attention of our Lord. Now, this city, if it was known for anything in the world, it was known for being unimpressive. It was situated along a, a long valley that stretched from Sardis to Pergamum, and it was not a well-fortified or fortifiable place. Uh, it really was a defenseless city, and so every enemy that came through Asia Minor, they would sweep down through this valley to get to the city of Pergamum, and they would devastate this, this little place. Over and over again, it was destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. In fact, it actually started out as a military outpost that was established by Alexander the Great, and its sole purpose, right, the, the reason this city existed was to buy time for Pergamum to prepare itself in the event of an attack. It was an outpost. But at this time, 500 years, 600 years later, with the, the conquest of the Romans came what is called the Pax Romana, and all that means is the Roman peace. And it's a period of time where the Roman Empire was so powerful, its military was so strong that nobody could stand against them or challenge them. No one could invade them. No one could wage war against them without being annihilated. And so the world became relatively peaceful during this time. And during this peace, Thyatira became prosperous. No, not large. Not an economic center, but wealthy enough, especially in fabrics and dyes. If you remember Acts 16.14, Paul encounters a woman from this city named Lydia. It says, uh, Lydia, uh, one who heard, so Paul is preaching, not in Thyatira, in a different city. And it says, one who heard uh, us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics who worshipped, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to what was said by Paul. And so Lydia was a merchant and an incredibly wealthy one. Purple was an exceedingly rare and expensive color in the ancient world. In fact, it was so rare and so difficult to produce, you know, the only way to, to actually extract it was from the throat of a specific sea snail. And even then, you, you might only get a half a drop at a time. It was very labor-intensive, very rare, and it was so rare that only the most incredibly wealthy were able to afford it. Along with pearls, it was the luxury good in antiquity. In fact, some shades of purple were so rare that only the emperor himself was permitted to, uh, to possess them. And so I think that says something about Lydia. She was a very wealthy woman and probably the first convert along with her family from Thyatira. And it's not unreasonable to believe that the church this letter is addressed to began meeting at her home. And so you, you might find it interesting to know that the main industry in Thyatira today, it's, it's not called that, it has a different name now that, that escapes me, but the main industry there today is making Persian rugs or Oriental rugs. And so it's a, a thousands of years long tradition. But that was Thyatira, a small commercial center. 
And what sprang up in this city were trade guilds. They were associations of people involved in the various trades. So they would be, uh, the trade guilds would be in charge of certifying someone to do the work that the guild represented. And they had quite a bit of power. You could think of uh, it as a, maybe a bar association or a medical association combined with a, with a union who represents those workers and sets the standards of qualification for its members. So, for example, if you were a seller of fabrics, you would be a part of the fabric guild and maybe the merchants guild, and those guilds would represent you politically. They would protect you from other guilds, protect you from non-guild members taking market share. Right? You couldn't just go and start selling textiles and fabrics. You, you needed permission from the guild or they would come and they would shut you down. Not only that, they would provide a level of, a, of assurance to the customers. If you were part of the guild, you could at least be trusted to be competent to do the work. And Thyatira was home to many of these guilds. Well, we say, interesting history lesson, Corey. What's the point? Well, the reason I spend so much time here is because these guilds are one of the main antagonists, not just in Thyatira, but to the church as a whole in the ancient world. You say, how are trade guilds threatening the church? All of those benefits that they offered, and if it was part of your trade, all of those benefits that you needed to have, the only way you could get them and become part of a guild was by bowing down and giving adulation and worship to the gods of these guilds. One of the price of admission, that was it. Because every guild had their patron god. If you were in the mining guild, it was a mining god. The fabric guild had the fabric god. The merchant guild had the, had the merchant god. And if you wanted to join one of those guilds in order to qualify, in order to be accredited with them, in order to participate in that trade, you actually had to swear allegiance to the guild that god, or to the god that guild worshipped. Had to join in the feasts, had to join in the festivities. So you wouldn't risk that god becoming angry with you and the other patrons. So you can see maybe how this sets the stage between a conflict uh, with the followers of Christ, an economic conflict, which will come up again in the book, won't it? Because if anyone knows anything about the book of Revelation, it's that you cannot buy or sell unless you have a particular mark that comes up in chapter 13. But this is one of the issues facing the church in Thyatira, economic pressure. If they fail to worship at the guild feasts, they're cut off economically. That's the, the situation in Thyatira that this letter is addressed to. Now the letter begins with Jesus announcing that he has eyes like flames of fire. And if you remember from chapter 1, what that means is he sees all things. Nothing is dark. Nothing is hidden from his sight. No one can deceive him. Nothing can be put away or under a rug. You know when you have a child and they try to, uh, maybe they've done something wrong. You know they've done something wrong. And, and you go and you ask them about it and maybe they broke something. What do they do? They hide it. They open up the drawer and they put it in. They close the door. Out of sight, out of mind. That doesn't happen with the Lord Jesus. You can't put anything out of his sight because he sees all things. And he knows exactly what's happening at the church in Thyatira. He knows what's going on. He knows what's happening in secret. And he knows those who have remained faithful to him. And this is the, the thrust of this letter. Jesus knows. Now, they may think they've hidden things away. 
They've been like Achan. They buried them in the sand under their tents. But the Lord knows their hidden works. He knows those who are wayward. And He knows those who are steadfast. And He begins His address to the church by commending them. He has good things to say about them. It's actually the, they're the exact opposite of the church in Ephesus. They excel where the Ephesians failed. The Ephesus church was told back to go back and do the works they did at first. This church is told you have surpassed the works you did at first. They are faithful and they're serving and they're enduring and there are many believers in Thyatira who love Christ. But love alone is not enough. And loving works are worthless if they lead to a toleration of sin. And that's exactly the problem facing this church. They had no discernment. They exceeded themselves in works on the one hand, and they plunged into false teaching and immorality on the other. They, they didn't hold up well under pressure. And what was this pressure? As you probably guessed, it's the trade guilds. And where in Pergamum, the pressure to compromise was religious and political, here it's economic. Economic compromise. Economic assault against the church. Where believers are forced to choose between, am I going to be faithful to Christ or am I going to keep going in this job? Would they worship the God of the guild in order to continue to participate in their trade? Would they go to the feast and practice the, the, the sexual rituals that followed which were part of the worship? Or would they refuse and risk being cut off from their trade? That's the, the dilemma that they're facing. And listen, folks, it really hasn't gone away, has it? It's no stretch of the imagination to think that every believer, right, every one of us, is going to feel this pressure in the next 10 years. Many already are feeling this pressure. Because if there was one area today where I think most people feel the, the tension of the world, it's here. It's in the fear of losing your job. It's not a hypothetical threat. It happens all the time, doesn't it? And I'm not talking ancient history. I'm talking 2022. The Bar Association of British Columbia, Nova Scotia, Ontario, they've forbidden graduates from Christian institutions being admitted to their associations. Can't be a lawyer if you graduate from a Christian institution. Uh, Christian beliefs, they say, are not compatible with a sincere and impartial practice of the law. It's becoming increasingly difficult to be involved in medicine, as I'm sure many of you are aware of. Medical associations are beginning to demand allegiance to their gods of death. I mean, in Canada, uh, some circles, medicine looks more like a death cult. Has, we have the most, uh, the most open-ended uh, assisted suicide laws in the world. And I can't imagine how grieving it would be to be a doctor or be a nurse or, or any kind of medical professional working in Canada this day and, 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 and knowing that you signed up to help people and the, the authorities over you are asking you to end their lives. It's not just professionals facing this. It happens in unions as well. You know, I remember this, this struck me when I was studying for this sermon, I came across a surprising account from John MacArthur about when he was a, a young Christian. So uh, basically what he said was he was invited to join a union and, and then he tells what happened. He first had to be sworn in. 
And so they took him to the Union Hall, he said, where about 600 had met. And a man stood up in front of them all and told them, I want all of the new people to stand up. And so he stood up and the man spoke again. Now I want you to raise your right hand and swear. And so John says, I was a bit nervous. I was a Christian. I don't swear to anyone but the Lord. And so I didn't raise my hand. I just stood there. And then the man said, do you swear allegiance to the local 770? It was the retail clerk's union. The meeting went on and on through all of this stuff, and he didn't put his hand up because, in his, as he said, he said, in my simple understanding of Christianity, I didn't swear to anyone but the Lord. His conscience wouldn't let him. And so after standing there for a little while, his hand not in the air, he said a man came up and grabbed him by the neck and demanded to know why he wouldn't put his hand up. And he told him, it's because I'm a Christian and I don't swear allegiance to anyone but God. And so the man dragged him away and threw him out of the building. And that was that, was that for him. All right, so if you join an association or a union, you, you be careful what you're swearing your allegiance to. And you think about these things. It's been a, it's been a challenge in the church from the beginning. And so if you, uh, you know, it, it may come to a point where Christians can't hold any jobs of, of influence or wealth at all. It's like that in some places already. In communist China, if, uh, if you want to have a job that's anything more than a farmer or a laborer, you have to join the Communist Party. And joining the Communist Party, when you do, you explicitly sign your name to a statement that says, I will not become a Christian. So if you want to be a teacher, go to university, or be a manager, or anything of the sort, be involved in politics, you have to decide. And it may have nothing to do with your personal convictions at all. It could just be because you were the member of, a wrong, of the wrong kind of church for uh, one time in your life. Just the other day, just last week actually, a man was hired as the CEO of an Australian rules football team. Maybe you've heard this. Uh, but then something horrific was discovered about the man. He was found out to be a board member of City on a Hill, uh, an evangelical Anglican church in Australia. I think we sang one of their songs this morning. And in that church, almost 10 years ago, the pastor preached a sermon affirming the biblical doctrine of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and what it means to be married. And he never repudiated it. Well, this horrified the sports club. When they discovered it, they immediately demanded their new, he'd only been on the job for a day, well-qualified CEO step down. They, they couldn't tolerate him simply because of a message his pastor preached before he even joined the church. And that's a reality facing many believers today. And so you, you, you'd better get with the program or you're going to be out of a job. And even church membership may put you at odds with the company you serve. Some corporations now perform uh, background checks, and part of that background check includes suspicious church behavior. And as a church that affirms the authority of Scripture and the truth of Scripture, I can almost guarantee that we would be included in whatever suspicious church activity looks like. Right? But the point is, there is a cost to following Christ, and that cost is becoming more and more apparent. And it won't even be enough to, to distance yourself from the church. That's what that CEO in Australia tried to do. He said, oh, I didn't even know that they'd preach that. No, you have to repudiate it. And you have to repudiate Christ, and you have to repudiate His Word. And those are the demands that come if you get caught as a member of the wrong kind of church or as a person having the wrong kind of 
beliefs. That's where we're at. And when it comes to hiring, professional licensing, getting contracts, admissions to college, this is going to start coming up more and more. And unless this changes, you know, if you don't face it, you can be sure your children will. And so if you want, uh, if you want above all job security, then go and join a church that flies a rainbow flag out front and you'll have job security. You'll be safe. You'll find your job more secure. You'll find your position in the culture more secure until the judgment. And then you'll find yourself not secure at all. And so you need to consider these things. Even your church membership may cost your job, but your job may demand your soul. It happens all the time. And it's a reality that the early church faced, and it's a reality that the church in Thyatira is facing. And into this church came an answer. It wasn't a very good answer. It came in the form of the prophetess Jezebel. And here's another Old Testament reference that's applied to the New Testament church. And Jezebel was not an Israelite, but a Tyrian from the city of Tyre, Tyre and Sidon. Uh, it's in modern Lebanon. And she married the Israelite king Ahab, who was notorious for his wickedness and his idolatry. 1 Kings 21 and 25, it says, There was no one who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. And so she led people astray. She led them away from God and into idolatry and into immorality. And that's what's happening here. The prophetess, whoever she is, she is leading people away from God and toward the tables of idols and sexual perversion. And what's she saying? Well, we're told later that she came teaching deep things. You know, I've got deep things for you. And some of those who were faithful in Thyatira said, yeah, the deep things of Satan. But she has deep things to tell the believers that will free them to eat at the table of the trade gods. Anytime in church history, by the way, someone comes along and says, I've got deep things for you. I have something deeper. I have something hidden. I have something secret, secret knowledge. You know, that ordinary Christianity stuff, that's okay, but I've got something more. You hear that, watch out. Because whenever anybody says that, you can be sure that there is trouble afoot. Nothing good ever comes from people who claim to have deep things or secret knowledge or anything of the sort. So be content with the gospel and the ordinary means of grace. Now you can, you, you can apply those means in ordinary, uh, extraordinary ways. You know, what do you mean? Well, you might have a particularly thorny sin or a difficult decision to make. And so following the example of the Lord, you spend the entire night in prayer. An extraordinary application of the ordinary means of grace. We pray. It's one of the ways we, we talk to God and, and plead with Him and intercede on behalf of others. And that in an extraordinary way is extended to a night of prayer. But that's very different than trying to pry into some secret or new or deep kind of power and knowledge. That always gets people in trouble. And whatever the Thyatirans are hearing, Jesus recognizes it as the deep things of Satan. You'll say, well, what could that be? Going by church history and going by the rest of Scripture as a guide, I imagine they were being told something along the lines of how they were 
maybe freer than they thought. You hear this today. Scripture sometimes misquoted. It is for freedom Christ has set you free. You're free from sin. You can commit adultery and it can't hurt you. You can worship idols. You can be sexually immoral and it can't hurt you. It's the spirit that matters. What's done in the body, who cares? That's the deeper knowledge. Whatever's done in the body doesn't matter. The spirit is what counts. And if your spirit is pure and the flesh profits nothing. Could you imagine someone saying something like this today? Someone saying something like this in the church. They do it all the time. There's nothing new under the sun. And the church, broadly speaking, they suffer the same problems over and over again. Some group is always teaching the abuse of grace in every generation. It happens today when people, uh, without people even knowing they're doing it. Have you ever heard the expression, have you ever heard the expression, heart of hearts? As in, I love Jesus in my heart of hearts. Do you know what the heart of hearts is? Yeah, neither do I. <laughs> but I know where it comes from. It comes from Shakespeare, who in all likelihood got it from the Greeks. And at its, at its base is this belief that it's the spirit that is important and the body doesn't matter at all. This is what was taught by ancient Greek philosophers like Plato, and it had a massive influence on the early church. A bad influence in the early church. And that's kind of how it's used today. It's a spirit that matters, the body not at all. And it means, usually, that somebody loves Jesus even though they don't act like it, and even though they never really think about Him, and even though nobody looking at their life would ever possibly mistake them for a Christian, somewhere in the deepest secret part of their being, so deep and so mysterious that they don't even understand it, is a place called the heart of hearts where they think they have sincerely uh, loved Jesus Christ. It's a place beyond any rational investigation. It's in the heart of hearts. You know what Paul says over and over? He says it a lot, but in Romans 12.1, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, on account of God's mercy, offer your bodies, not your hearts, not your heart of hearts, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. God wants your heart and your body. When the Lord saves a person, He saves the whole man, not part, not divided. So don't offer your heart of hearts and don't even offer your heart. <laughs> offer everything to live for Christ. That's the exact opposite of the doctrine of the carnal Christian, by the way, that's so popular. It's a false doctrine, even a heretical doctrine, and you know what I mean by that. There are doctrines that are errors and there are doctrines that if you believe them, you'll die and go to hell. This is one of them. Basically, you can live however you want, so long as there was a time in your life, one point when you asked Jesus into your heart to save you. Right? Free from the law, blessed condition. I can sin all I want without fear, uh, without fear of remission. It's a kind of faith that is so deeply hidden within, it has no practical effect on my life whatsoever. And I think if you could ask Jesus, what, do you, what would you call that? He would call it the deep things of Satan. Because what does it lead to? Does it lead to godliness? 
No, it leads to exactly what's happening here in the church at Thyatira. It leads to sin and a mocking of the Lord's mercy. You don't have to fight sin. You don't have to strive for holiness. I mean, you should. It's optional. You can have all of the sexual immorality you want. You can watch whatever you want. You can live however you want. Worship idols, consequence-free. You don't have to make war on the world. You can just go and join them and still be secure in Christ. His grace is that great. I would say, no. It's actually far greater than that. Because grace doesn't only redeem us, it also trains us, as Titus tells us, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace does that. It's not a grace that only delivers us from bondage, but it's a grace that also sustains us in the wilderness and keeps us clean in an unclean world and brings us all the way home. That's the grace that God provides. And if you want to see this grace at work, just go back and again, read the seven churches in Revelation. They are judged not primarily by what they know in their heart, but what that knowledge in the heart, what that, those actions that they perform reveal about what they know in their heart. And how convenient is it that here in a city of trade guilds and commerce that a prophetess would appear with the deep secret that Christians don't need to suffer loss by refraining from the, the guilds' idolatrous festivals and immoral celebrations. Christians don't actually have to live holy lives. And so to save their material well-being and to gratify the lusts of the flesh, these people at the church in Thyatira become children of Jezebel and they rush out with this newfound knowledge, this new freedom. And what do they do with it? They dive headlong into immorality. They stop resisting. They stop fighting the world. They stop restraining the flesh. They give in. And Jesus warns them, unless they repent... They will be destroyed. They will prove that they never belonged to Jesus in the first place. And so he begins his warning by quoting Scripture to the churches. He quotes Jeremiah, 20, uh, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah in verse 24, Jeremiah 17 something. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. At the very least, this means that Jesus sees everything that they're doing. You know, they may have deep things, he sees deeper still. He has eyes like beacons. And not only does he see the externals, he searches the hearts and tests the minds. He knows what's really in your heart. He knows what's really in your mind. If there was such a thing as a heart of hearts, Jesus would know what was in there. He knows your works. And not only does he know them, he knows them better than you do. And what are we told? He will judge you by them. A Christian is not saved by their works, but faith in the heart manifests itself by works of the hands and works done by the body. If you have grace in the heart and have been born again, you will live a holy life because you have been changed at a fundamental level. You know, what a message to those who think that what's done in the body is of no consequence at all. Jesus tells them he will judge them by their works. That's a terrifying message to those who think that what's done in the body doesn't matter at all. All those things that are done, they are outward displays 
of Christ within. And God is going to hold people accountable to them. And Jesus isn't saying He's going to judge believers here. He's saying He's going to judge between false believers and genuine believers. And we know that because soon He says in this letter to the Thyatirans, He's going to make a very clear distinction between those who are faithful and those who are faithless. He's going to divide them like He divides sheep from goats. But before He does, He specifically threatens the followers of Jezebel. He warns them to repent while they still can. In verse 21, he says to Jezebel, I gave her time to repent. I warned her. I let her know and I let her followers know. But they ignored me and they pressed on in their immorality. She pressed on in her licentiousness. She refused to uh, repent. And now her time has come. She'll have to answer for what she has done. In fact, the whole church is reprimanded for even tolerating her. The church should have disciplined these people. They should have put her out. Maybe they were uh, too loving, but they really weren't loving at all. They were destroying the church. And so Christ comes to carry out the sentence and clean house, His house. And for His own namesake and for the purity of the church, Jesus says, I am going to deal with this Jezebel. And by the way, we don't know if it's a, if it's a, if it's a man or a woman. It's a figurative language. But we do know it's a false teacher in the church. And Jesus is going to deal with her severely. Verse 22, He will throw her onto a sick bed. He'll make her sick. He'll send a disease that will end in death. It's too late for her, He says. Repentance has come. I gave her time. Rejected, rejected. Now the time is gone. Same thing happened in the Corinthian church, by the way. The, they were profaning the Lord's Supper. What happens? Jesus says, This is why many of you have fallen asleep. And what he meant by that is, you've died. And he warns the followers here in Thyatira, the same thing is going to happen to anyone in this church claiming Christ who follows Jezebel unless they repent of her works. Repent of her works. Not just her teaching, her works. What that teaching produces. The Thyatirans are being told by the culture around them to repudiate Christ. Christ warns them to repudiate Jezebel. Where everything that they hope to gain and all the trials they hope to avoid by embracing the, the idolatry and being like the pagans, because that's why they're doing it, right? If we just act like this, we're going to avoid all of the trials. We'll keep our, we'll keep our jobs. We won't have to worry about it. Says you do that, you will endure a hundredfold from the hand of the Lord. And He will come against them in great tribulation. And it will be far worse than whatever they were trying to escape. The simple lesson here is that sin never pays. It never, ever pays. Any kind of Christianity that makes sin and idolatry tolerable, tolerable, does not discipline it, does not deal with it, not, and not only doesn't just, you know, it's okay, but tolerates it. Yeah, they shouldn't do that, but whatever. It's wicked in God's sight. And so when you hear something like that taught, it's okay. Sin is permissible. It doesn't imperil the soul. It doesn't require the cutting off of hands and the gouging out of eyes. Whenever you hear that, you'd better run. Sin is never okay. It invites severity from Christ. You say, how severe can it get? Well, in verse 23, Jesus says He will kill all of her children. This is Jesus speaking. And He's not talking about physical sons and daughters, but he's talking about those who are spiritual children who follow her. 
He is warning those who are perverting the grace of Christ. They don't stop. He's going to strike them down. He'll trample them under His feet of brass. He will do it as an example to the rest of the churches so that they would smarten up and not tolerate these things. Next is a shift and a divide in verse 24. Now the Lord is speaking to those who are faithful in the church. And so you have some members of the church who are following and tolerating Jezebel. And then you have others who do not believe these things. Again, it's similar to the church in Corinth. When Paul's addressing them, he says, I hear there's factions among you. And truth be told, there has to be. Because if anyone is going to faithfully follow Christ, they're going to have to break off and, and not be so closely associated with you Corinthians uh, you, you Corinthian church. But here's what he says. You have some members in the church who are tolerating Jezebel, and then you have some who do not believe these things. And Jesus tells them, continue refusing to believe it and hold fast until I come. You know, I remember a while ago, I received an email from a young man in Quebec. It was probably three years ago now. And he wanted to know if there were any churches in his area. He said, the one I'm attending, it's it's charismatic. It's a little too excessive doctrinally. They're not as precise as I, I want them to be. And we've, we've got some issues. Now, they, they weren't first order issues. But we're not talking about the doctrine of God. We're not talking about the gospel or the authority of Scripture or things like that. They were, they were secondary matters. And he wanted to know, well, what should I do? It's the only church in town. Should I leave or should I stay? And I pointed him to this passage in Revelation, the, the church at Thyatira. Because if one of the things here is made clear, it's that it's possible to be part of a bad church and still faithfully serve the Lord. Now, you remember what's going on here. People are compromising. They're being worldly. They're worshiping idols. They're indulging in sexually immoral behavior. And sure, there are some good things happening too, but they're being drowned out in the shadow of the sin. Now, if you were in a church that was doing this, how would you feel? Well, you'd be wondering... Maybe I should go somewhere else or just go and worship on my own. There are times when that is the right response. Whenever a church compromises on first order doctrines, things like who is God, what is the gospel, or the authority of Scripture, things like that, or they, they tolerate immorality, and you say, well, the Thyatirans were tolerating immorality, yes, and Jesus himself was coming to, to, to deal with that, and so he told the believers there to hold on until he gets there, a lot of people today, we don't have that promise. But they're tolerating immorality or promoting it or won't repent when these things are pointed out. If you're in a church that does those things, you should leave. You should leave right away. You should leave in the right way. You should go to the, the leadership of the church and speak with them about your concerns. See if they recognize them. See if they're willing to repent of them. You know, maybe there's more going on than you're aware of. And maybe they are trying to work through these problems. And what you really need to do is pray for them. But if they aren't working through them and they don't see them as problems at all, if they're not going to uh, repent from them, I mean, if a church can disregard who is God, they can disregard Christian ethics, and they can have little regard for the gospel and, and wouldn't repent when they're confronted, I mean, you have every right to leave. In fact, if you can, you should. It even goes so far to say, as if you can, you must, because you may not even be part of an actual church. You see this in the book of Chronicles. When Jeroboam in the northern kingdom begins to distort the worship of God by making calves to represent him. So he says, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
begins appointing his own priests, changes the religious calendar, begins to doing all of these things. Many of those who are faithful to the Lord in the northern kingdom of Israel, this is after it divided, they left. It says the Levites packed up, many from the northern tribes who were faithful, they wanted to worship the Lord, so they packed up everything and they moved south to Judah to worship Him. And there are times when not only is that appropriate, but it's necessary for the, for the spiritual health of the believer and for the namesake of God. If those first order principles are being violated, find somewhere else. You say, but what about secondary matters? What about things like missions philosophy or, or ecclesiology, the, the structure of the church, which can sometimes be unbiblical? What about uh, doctrines understanding the work of God and salvation and free will and baptism? What then? Well, do the same thing. Go to the leadership and speak to them about these things. See if you can work together and work it out. You know, if the preaching is sound, if the Scripture's authority is recognized, if immorality is not tolerated, God is properly defined, and it's on other things you differ, then speak to the leadership. You may still decide to leave, but you certainly don't have to. And if you bring something before the church, then you say, this is, this is what the Bible says we ought to do, and they say, I don't know, yeah, but that's not the way we've always done it. That very quickly becomes a first order issue because now you're talking about the authority of Scripture. And if you can show people in Scripture, hey, you, we really shouldn't be doing this, and they say, yeah, no big deal, that's never a secondary issue. It can look that way, it never is. But if it's not one of those first order things, you may decide to stay where you're at, and that's fine. You may decide to leave, that's fine. If it's the only church in town, don't leave it even if you might want to. Unless, you know, decide to move somewhere else. But, uh, but being in a church you disagree with about some minor points is better than not being in a church at all. And then there are really bad reasons to leave a church. Oh, they didn't think that all of my ideas were really good and I should put them in. Or I have, I have personal conflicts with individuals in the church and I don't like the music they sing or the colors of those kinds of things. Look, those are sin issues and usually in the person who is doing the leaving. And so there are times when a person should leave a church and there are times when they shouldn't. And, and again, this, this changes when your family is involved. A single person might stay and try to steer a wayward church in a better direction, but a father who's responsible for his family and their spiritual well-being, he doesn't have that freedom. He doesn't. He has to be concerned not only about the direction of his church, but also for the teaching his family is receiving. And if they aren't being cared for spiritually, or worse, they're being numbed or led astray, then the family must leave. But what if you can't? I think that's what this, this answers in particular. What if you can't? You say, well, you always can. No, you can't. Those in Thyatira couldn't. In the Middle Ages, you weren't allowed to leave your town. You only had one church you could go to. You know, the parish system of churches, you went, to the, you went to the church in your parish and you couldn't leave it. What if you can't? It happens. My friend in Quebec, he couldn't. If you here could, my friend couldn't. What then? Jesus doesn't tell the Christians to go out and start a new church, although they might. He tells them to be faithful where they are. He doesn't burden them with anything more than they've already had to endure. 
And he tells them, hold fast until he comes. He makes a distinction. He says, yes, you're not in a good place, but I see it. I see your faithfulness in spite of it. And if you aren't able to leave, then the word of Christ to you is don't trouble yourself about it anymore. You be faithful. I'll deal with the church. You pray for them, even to this body of believers that you disagree with. And you, in my eyes, you persevere. The Lord is telling us here that the church doesn't stand or fall together. Even if the church as a whole is removed, Christ still sees those who are faithful and He knows them and He will not let them be lost. And the one who holds fast and overcomes to the one who endures to the end, even if they seem to endure alone, He will give them authority over the nations. And they, those who are faithful, will rule them with an rod of iron as when pots are broken into pieces. They will be given the authority that the Lord Jesus Himself received from His Father. And and you see what the promise is. It's an allusion to Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, the nations are raging against the Lord. They're going to cast Him off. They're going to break free. And then the Father laughs at these nations. Then He turns and in verse 9, He speaks to His Son and He says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord tells His church, He tells us, if you persevere, if you hold fast, if you conquer, then I will give you a share of what was given to Me. And the nations won't be raging anymore. All the poverty... All of the difficulty, all of the challenges, they're temporary. They're not going to last. And in order to to get to the end of them, to the the glorious uh, part that comes after, what's needed is endurance. You know, he tells them to conquer. What is he telling them to conquer? Don't compromise with the trade guilds. Don't give in to Jezebel. Hold fast. And to those who do... They will smash the enemies of Christ like one batting clay pots with an iron bat. That's the, that's the picture. And how fitting is it? You know, some in this church in Thyatira, they wanted to gain the world. Maybe they wanted the sin of the world. Maybe they wanted the admiration of the world. Maybe they wanted the, the comfort of the world. Certainly they wanted the security in the world. And I'm sure they got it when they participated and did all the things the world did. They got everything this world has to offer, including the judgment of Christ that's going to come against it. They wanted the world. They desired the world. They justified getting it. They they, they sought out, uh, they tolerated teachers who would tell them how they could have it. And in the end, ironically, they are denied it. They don't inherit the world. Those who are faithful inherit the world. And not only do they inherit it, but they rule it and they judge it with Christ as his viceroys. You know, what a reminder for people who are tempted to yield. It's just like in Pergamum. What's the temptation? If I compromise, if I permit sexual perversion or celebrate it, if, if, I, if I just allow it and kind of nod my head toward it, then I can get the applause of the world. 
They'll leave me alone. No trouble at all. I'll get along with them. They'll get along with me. And they will give me a portion. My little cubicle-sized domain. It's not worth it. If you overcome those temptations and remain faithful and conquer, you inherit the world from the hands of Christ. And it will be yours forever, never to be taken away. And those who judged you in this life and found you lacking, you will be tasked to judge in the life to come. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, you will judge angels. And Christians will be the ones who, fully redeemed, will prosecute the enemies of the Lord before His throne. It's by His authority and His rule, of course. But the task of carrying it out is given to those who overcome. It's the same as the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, go. When the end comes, all authority to judge has been given to me, Christ says. Therefore, judge. You want to promise the next time the world comes threatening? Just hold on. Another few decades and the tables will be turned and you will reign with Christ forever. That's his message to those who are tempted to tolerate sin or to adapt to avoid economic hardship. I mean, think about what you're losing. It's not a job. It's not just a reputation. But what's the cost eternally? When you see it that way, it really starts to become an easy decision, doesn't it? You know, on the one hand, you have the eternal glory of the kingdom of God whose rule stretches supremely from one end of this infinite universe to the other. And then on the other hand, comfort and ease and peace with the world for a trivial amount of time and after that, the judgment. You can only choose one. It's not a hard decision when you put it this way, is it? Cling to Christ. Keep your eyes fixed firmly on Him, fixed in eternity. Believe by faith that what He offers is supreme to any of the refuse of the world. And you will quickly discover yourself finding no price is too great to pay for Him and for His sake. You will begin to realize that even though I am poor, I am rich in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word to Your church. And we pray, God, I pray that You would give us eyes to see, Lord, things as they really are. Lord, give us eyes to see into eternity and to perceive it as greater than the world in which we walk. Let it be more real to us than the ground under our feet, Lord, the life and the world to come so that we see things here as they are, trivial compared to eternity, not worth compromising over. Well, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose the soul? In the end, he loses the world and his soul. The Lord of the one who conquers, he is given eternal life and inherits everything. Lord, help us to see things this way. Help us to believe you that compromise is costlier. And that even though there is a cost in following You, it is small in comparison. Lord, help us to weight the scales rightly. Glory and eternity and 
reigning with Christ on one hand. Thirty years of ease on the other. Lord, help us to see things as You see things. Lord, as the, as the great minister said, stamp eternity on our eyeballs that we see everything through those lenses and that when compromise comes tempting, that we would really see what it would cost us. It's in Your name we pray. Lord, help Your people. These things are not easy. But they can become easy if we are prepared by faith. And I pray that You would prepare Your people and help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.